All right, David, thank you so much for leading us in that time of praise and worship. And now, everyone, it is time for us to get into our study of God's Word. And today we're going to be in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. So if you have your Bibles or your phone or tablet or whatever you're using to follow along, go ahead and open up at this time to Exodus, chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. So we'll read that passage aloud together. I'll pray and then we'll get into our study of God's word this morning. Exodus 21, 1 through 6. This is the word of God. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning, and we just pray that you would speak to us through this text. Lord, we believe that you inspired these words, that your Holy Spirit was moving upon holy men as they wrought the Holy Scriptures. Lord, we thank you for your servant Moses. We thank you for the calling on his life. We thank you for that difficult and strange world in which he was called to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt as a nation of slaves and into the promised land to be lights and witnesses to the world. Lord, we know that in many ways Israel failed in that vocation. And so we look back to that one day 2,000 years ago when the only true and faithful Israelite, Jesus Christ, came in the world to fulfill the promises of God and to reveal the heart of God to the world. So, Lord, we pray that as we Christians, as we modern people look at this ancient text and we find things about it perhaps troubling or confusing or alarming, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be softened and that our minds would be open to whatever the Holy Spirit would speak to the church today. We ask this blessing now over your word and we pray you would change our lives today. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So it was 1979, and the 1960s rock icon Bob Dylan began what history of music uh, fans would call his gospel period. And in that famous gospel period where Bob Dylan's conversion to Christianity began to change his songwriting, he released an album entitled Slow Train Coming. And one of those most famous songs from that album was a song called Gotta Serve Somebody. Let me read you just one brief stanza from that famous song. Dylan writes, You might be a rock and roll addict, 
prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. What I believe that Dylan is helpfully doing for us there is highlighting the reality that slavery is not just an archaic economic institution of times past, but it is also, and perhaps even fundamentally, the spiritual condition of all human beings. And I believe that as we read the Old Testament, and as we modern people, modern Westerners, modern Americans in the age of technology and capitalism and democratic uh, politics, as we read texts like the ones before us this morning, and we find them strange and we find them confusing and we find them perhaps alarming, I think one of the things we need to do is be aware of the spiritual realities to which these historical realities ultimately point. And so what I want to do this morning is two things. I want to first answer the question, how should we think about passages like these in the Old Testament that speak of slavery? How should we think about it? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you accept the authority of the Bible, this may not be as big of a problem for you as it will be for other people. For those who have not already made the decision to follow Jesus Christ, for those who have not been born again by the Spirit of God, because remember, following Jesus is not just a philosophy, it is a spiritual life. It is a new way of living and existing in the world. And so following Jesus and believing in his name actually grants you a new nature. And so you're able to make sense out of things that other people simply are not able or are unwilling to do so. So, friends, I think it's important that even if for you this morning, texts such as the one before us about slavery aren't a particular problem for you, you're, you're not angry about it, you're not, you don't look at that and say, well, then I can't trust the rest of the Bible. I do think it's important that we acknowledge that is how many people feel about the Bible when they look at texts like these. So it's actually on the basis of texts like the one before us this morning, Exodus 21, 1 through 6, that many people actually won't even bother looking at the rest of the Bible. They won't look at John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. They say, I can't listen to that. I don't believe that. That's not authoritative for me because I read Exodus 21, 1 through 6, and I was bothered by it. And so I discount the rest of the Bible. So I do think it's important that I briefly address, not in detail, but in sort of an overview form, how we should think about text like these in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. And secondly, I want to talk about how the historical references to slavery actually inform our understanding of spiritual condition of man, those two 
questions. So let's go ahead and look at the text. It says, now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. So what we just did in this section is we already read the famous Ten Commandments. As I said, many people are very familiar with the Ten Commandments. If they don't have them all memorized, <clears throat> they at least know the idea. Hey, there's these Ten Commandments. I know they're kind of like the, the backbone, as it were, of ancient Israelite culture or Old Testament ethics. And that's exactly right. The Ten Commandments are what we call apodictic law. And apodictic law is universal law. These are principles that are to be applied at all times. Now, where we're moving into now is a different kind of law. It's what they call casuistic law, or to put it in more plain English, case law. So in other words, in the Ten Commandments, you don't see if-then hypothetical scenarios. It doesn't say, if this is the case, then that. It simply says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. That's it. There's, there's no qualification. There's no application of it. It's a universal principle. It is to be accepted. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife. There's no, well, if this is the case, then that. It's a universal law. But what we're getting into here is what scholars have called the covenant code or even the book of the covenant. And mainly the reason they call it that is because it's a section of case law. It is sort of the extrapolating of those principles in the Ten Commandments and bringing them to bear on, listen to this, the unique historical situation of the ancient Israelites. That's important. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So the case law that you see, the casuistic laws in the rest of the Bible, are essentially taking the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, as universal principles, and then extrapolating from those to address present historical realities for the ancient Israelite community. That is important to understand. So that's the section that we're in. We're not going to cover every single of the laws that are mentioned. What I believe I think is best to do is I'll sort of highlight uh, different laws as we move along. I'll provide the uh, recommended reading. If we're going to move over a section, I'll give you that section so you can read that on your own. Again, for the sake of time, it would probably take years, uh, no joke, years of Sundays for me to go through every single law and to really unpack it in all its details. So what I want to do is kind of take a sampling of those laws that are there and the lessons that we learn there can be applied uh, to numerous other texts because much of what you're going to see as you read through the covenant code actually overlaps with one another. So let me address the first question right now. And that again was, what should we make of the fact that the Bible appears to condone slavery as a practice? Well, there's five things I want to say in this regard. Number one, the Bible did not create the concept of slavery. Number one, the Bible did not create the concept of slavery. Now, many critics of the Bible, that, that's how they, they picture the Bible. They picture that the Bible came into a, a blank slate. The world was a blank slate. There was no evil. There was no sin. There were no governments. There were no economic institutions. And the Bible just said, hey, slavery is the best form of government. Here it is. Here's, here's what you ought to do. That's not the case. 
it's important to know if you're a student of history, it is important to know that slavery was universally practiced in the ancient Near East. Slavery was universally practiced in the ancient Near East. In other words, the Bible is not creating something that's not there. It's addressing something that is already there. That's what the Bible is doing. So again, the Bible is in many ways, though it has high theology, and I think it, it leads us above and beyond the times we find ourselves in. And yet the Bible is also intensely practical. It acknowledges the world is not as it should be. People are not as they should be. Governments are not as they should be. Even the natural world, for that matter, is not as it should be. That's what the Bible teaches. But given that all those things are true. The Bible comes in and begins to limit it and it begins to subvert it. So it's very important to understand that slavery was universally practiced in the ancient Near East. The Bible did not create it. It is addressing an already existing reality. Number two, the ancient Israelites who were actually a nation of slaves at the time of the Exodus event. So think about that. The people receiving this were not like people in America today. You live in a capitalist society and you're free to vote everything and, you know, relatively high degree of standard of living. And then all of a sudden the Bible says, oh, here's slavery. No, this was a nation of slaves. And slaves in Egypt, where again, infanticide uh, was taking place of uh, the young uh, Jewish males, uh, horrible physical beatings and uh, things of that nature. So that's that's the context. That The Israelites know all about the horrors of slavery. The ancient Israelites, who actually were a nation of slaves at the time of the Exodus, knew far more about the potential horrors of slavery than many modern critics today. That's very important because a, a lot of people like to, I, I don't really know what it is, they, there's some kind of moral high ground they think they have. It's, it's above the Bible, some self-created moral standing, and then they look down on the Bible and they sort of judge it, and go, oh, do you know how bad slavery is and all these horrible things happen? Um, think about the ignorance and arrogance of that statement. The ancient Israelites who first received this text actually were a nation of slaves. In other words, if there was anyone who was going to be a critic of the Bible, it should have been the ancient Israelites, not not some you know modern scholar sitting in an ivory tower, you know, driving his electric vehicle to work every day. No, it should have been them, but rather the way they received it, the way the ancient Israelites received it, was a work of grace. A work of grace that took a horrible, awful, existing reality that they knew, not in theory, but in experience. And they saw how the Bible was transforming that experience for the better. So, important point to acknowledge. Number three, slavery in the ancient Near East provided an alternative to death in warfare and as a means of paying off debt. So again, in, in an idealistic world, of course, I would want to affirm, and I, I think everybody uh, listening to me right now would feel the same way. We would want to affirm slavery is bad. We, we don't ever want to see it return uh, in any form. It's bad. And I think we all can agree on that. But if you go back to the ancient world, and this is one of the reasons why it's so important that we do that, 
that we don't just import our experience onto the text because we may misunderstand what was actually being said. And back then, as bad as slavery is, and I know this is, this is hard in, for us modern people to, to grasp, but in some ways, slavery was preferable to the alternatives. In some ways, at that time, in the ancient Near East, slavery was preferable as an alternative. Okay, so number one, one of the key ways that slavery happened was warfare. So in warfare, of course, there were no Geneva con conventions. There were, there were no rules governing what kind of atrocities people groups could commit to other people groups. They would do all kinds of terrible, terrible, unspeakable things. I mean, really, we, we can't imagine. We don't allow it legally. It's not even allowed in warfare to do that to the enemy. But back then, that's not how it was. And so for many people who preferred not to die and be tortured to death and mutilated, they actually, slavery was a way of saving their lives. So again, we wouldn't want to affirm of slavery in an ideal world, but back then, in the harsh realities of the ancient world, it could have been preferable to torture and death. Secondly, it was simply a means of paying off debt. Um, if you have nothing else to offer, so think about it, especially back then, um, if you're a farmer and you have this small little plot of land, and the crops aren't growing, and there's no rain, and you, you don't have cash, you, you don't have loans you can take out or whatever, um, you don't have a line of credit, the one thing you had was your labor, your human capital. And so one of the things they could do is say, hey, if we're going to starve to death, if my children are going to starve to death, I can sell myself into slavery, and I can pay off that debt, and I can stay alive. So again, is it ideal? Absolutely not. But once again, was it preferable to perhaps starving to death? Many of the ancients would have said, absolutely, I would much prefer to be a slave and stay alive than to be free and be dead. So that was a decision that many of the ancient people groups of the Near East had to make very regularly. Number four, in actuality, this is important. The biblical laws limit and even subvert many of the critical components of the institution of slavery. So again, it, it really depends on how you come at this text. Some people come at this and say, oh, the Bible is endorsing it and it's, it's, it's mandating and all this stuff. And again, you can only think that if you are ignorant of the context. That's really the only way it works. Because actually what it is, is number one, as I said, the Bible's not creating slavery. It's already there. So the question is, and it's the only economic system available. That, that's the way the world was back then. So what are you going to do about it? And so the Bible places limits on it. It says it can't just be unbridled. It, it can't have uh, no limitations on how it's going to be practiced in the relationship between masters and slaves. So first of all, the Bible puts limits and it keeps things from going outside those limits. Then secondly, it actually supplies key concepts and ideas and laws that actually subvert the practice of slavery. I won't go into too much detail here for the sake of a Sunday morning message, but let me just give you two brief examples. Uh, number one, the most common reason that freeborn peoples became slaves was due to exorbitant interest rates. 
So again, uh, many people kind of are unaware of the economic situation back then, but the loans that were that we have documented in Babylon or Nea Babylonia or Assyria or Akkad were in, incredible. Some of the loans were a hundred percent or a hundred and forty percent, and people would go broke from taking out these loans. And so that's how they would end up having to sell themselves into slavery. Well, the Bible later, you're going to see places rules against exacting usury. So especially for the Jewish nation, they were not to charge interest to one another. Now, when modern people read that today, and they don't think about it in light of slavery, they see no connection. But listen to this, friends, if it's true that one of the primary reasons for slavery was due to exorbitant interest rates, which people could not repay and force them into selling themselves, well, if the Bible comes in and says, as an Israelite, you're not allowed to charge interest, you're undermining the entire venture of slavery. You are subverting it. Another way, and I think very important to highlight with respect to many people's recollection of the history of slavery in America, is that the Old Testament actually mandates capital punishment, death, to any and all kidnappers. So it's quite ironic when you read some of these, you know, uh, early colonial Southerners that were trying to pick and choose Bible verses that, oh, masters and slaves, obey your masters, this kind of stuff. And notice they conveniently omit the part where if you kidnap anyone, you're worthy of death. So the entire African slave trade, which was kidnapping, that's what it was. They would go over there, kidnap, bring them over. That would have been outlawed by Old Testament law, but conveniently omitted by people. Once again, this highlights the necessity. We can't just pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we want. Friends, even if we don't understand on the surface how important it is to do that, we must do it as a principle. Scripture must be compared with Scripture. We cannot pick the parts we like and reject the parts we don't like, or vice versa. We have to take all of the Bible as God's Word, and we must compare Scripture with Scripture so that Scripture is the primary interpreter of Scripture. Not my personal feelings, not what culture is saying, what politics or government or media, what they're saying about the Bible. Let the Bible interpret itself. The Bible refers to itself thousands and thousands of times of cross-referencing, and so it's what some call a hyperlinked book, pointing back to different parts of it, and you can really only understand parts of the Bible in light of the whole of the Bible. So those are some important points to make for modern people today as we come to the scriptures. Now, secondly, I wanted to ask this question. How do the historical references to slavery help us to understand our spiritual condition and the nature of salvation? So let's look again at this text. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. Verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. Now, you'll notice, once again, it says if you buy a Hebrew servant, and it doesn't tell you the context or how that would happen, uh, but most likely the reason is it was a means of paying off debt. 
and people still get into debt today. So ultimately, the thing driving slavery is a problem that continues in the world today. The means of dealing with it may have changed, but the fundamental idea of debt, of bad things happening in life, misfortune befalling people, um, criminal activity happening to somebody and they're a victim of it and they end up in a place of debt. So debt is still a part of the world. The Bible acknowledges that debt is a part of the world. And so what it seeks to do is not eliminate the concept of debt per se, nor does it try to give it unbridled rule and reign over people's lives. But what it does is it sets finite limits on the, the reality of debt. So notice that even if a Hebrew servant serves six years, in the seventh he goes out free. So once again, even if people like to argue that the Bible was used to support the American practice of slavery, here's another text that's a huge problem for that. If someone were actually, if they, they, if they mistakenly thought that because the book of Exodus deals with the universal reality of slavery in the ancient Near East, that it was somehow proposing that it's an ideal situation, well, well, then what do you do with texts like this where it says, okay, if you're going to have a slave, the longest they're allowed to serve you is six years, and then they have to go out free, and, and they don't need to pay you for that. There's no redemption money. They just get to go. Well, was that practiced in the American South? Absolutely not. It was not practiced. It was for the, the rest of a person's life, uh, for the most part, and no chance of being set free. Whereas here in the Bible, that's not permitted. You can't just have endless debt. There has to be an end in sight for people's debt, for their slavery. He says in verse 3, if he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. So notice there's even rules and regulations guarding this. Because, of course, you can imagine a master who's in a position of power can say, hey, not only did I get you when you came in, but you also had uh, a wife, you had kids, or you had whatever it was, and you came in, now that's mine too. And the scripture saying, no, you're not allowed to do that. If this uh, was already his, already came in with it, this was his uh, family situation. No, the master is not allowed to claim ownership of that. So once again, it's not proposing an ideal world, but it is limiting the reality, the harsh reality of the world at that time. Verse 4 says, But if his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and she go shall go out by himself. Now, this is a different situation, so this is talking about not what the Hebrew slave brought with him into the master-slave relationship, but what was given to him by the master. Again, there's a little bit of debate. Uh, the word for wife here is the Hebrew word isha, which can simply mean woman, and the reason for bringing that up is it may not be the case that there's actual marriage taking place. It can be a, a conjugal relationship, but not necessarily a marital one. And scholars do debate that. And that does matter because some people would say, well, wait a minute, is, is God saying it's okay to violate the covenant of marriage and, and whatnot? So I just want to throw that out as a possible objection that some people raise, and that's a possible answer to that. The word does not necessarily mean wife. It can mean wife. Context determines, but it can simply mean woman as well. So it could be a, a different sort of arrangement. But the case is, if it's the master that is given, the servant or, or the slave these things, then that does belong to the master. The slave still has the right to go out, 
but he may not want to if the master was generous. And so look at verse 5. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Now, again, when we read that word love um, in the Bible, and I would say both Old and New Testaments, actually, but, but particularly the Old Testament, love does not necessarily refer to an emotional reaction. That's very, that's very important to note. It does not necessarily refer to an emotional reaction or a response. Uh, again, we can have different emotional reactions to things for all kinds of reasons, and sometimes that's not necessarily right or wrong. It's just the way you are, or the way I am, or, or etc. So what the Bible is chiefly concerned about, when we talk about loving God, for instance, or this servant loving his master, it has to do with a declaration of loyalty. At the end of the day, that's really what love boils down to is loyalty. And I remember when I was uh, a young man, I don't feel so young anymore, but I was a young man, I was single, um, marriage when I was growing up was not something I, I wanted to do at all. I mean, honestly, as a teenager, I thought marriage sounded horrible, awful, never, ever, ever, ever want to get married. I just want to say as far away from that as absolutely possible. And one of the things that, that happened to me as a result of meeting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior is my desires and my thoughts and my affections began to change. And one of the things that changed radically was my view towards marriage. And so as I became a Christian, God began to soften my heart. And rather than marriage and being tied down uh, to one person, which seems so restrictive, why tie yourself down to one person? I mean, if you meet one person, but maybe there's a better one just around the corner and you don't want to get locked into something. That was the idea. But more and more, the idea of giving myself to one person and forsaking all others became more and more of an attractive idea. And so as that desire was changing, I remember going to my dad and, and just beginning to talk to him. And, and I remember saying, hey, dad, like, how did you know to marry mom? Like, what, what were you thinking and, and what were you looking for? And I remember he was telling me, well, well, you know, when you're when you're first getting married and stuff, you know, you're thinking, uh, you know, is, is this person pretty? Are they nice? Are they are they funny? Are they successful? You know, you think about all that kind of stuff and all that matters. But one of the biggest problems is that's where those become the primary reasons people make decisions on marriage. But when I said, Dad, now looking back, you know, you were, you're making these decisions, you know, to, to get married to mom and you both felt like the Lord led you to do it. But again, how, how do I know what that means? And I said, but Dad, let me ask you a different question. Now looking back, 20 something years later on marriage. So you, when you're young, you get married for X, Y, and Z. Are they, would you say it's the same reason now today as it was then? And my dad said to me, son, loyalty. He said loyalty. As, as we've gone through life together, as we've gone through the ups and downs, as we've gone through, you know, it, physical illness and cancer, as we've gone through, you know, teenage kids rebelling against us and walking away from the faith, as we went through just people that we loved and poured our lives into, just breaking our hearts and, and just hurting us so bad. He's like, through the thick and thin of it all, your mom has stayed loyal to me. 
And I remember that resonated with me because again, as, as a young man, loyalty wasn't number one on my list of what I was looking for in a female companion. But as I grew in the Lord, I started to see it is. It is about loyalty. Loyalty is ultimately what it comes down to. It doesn't matter how smart, how funny, how successful, how wealthy, how, how charming, whatever else somebody is, if they're disloyal to you. Disloyalty ruins everything else. And so what you need to understand, what we need to understand when we read the Bible and we are told to love God or that God loves us, it is not pre pre referring primarily to a felt sense of emotion, but rather a commitment and action to loyalty, that we are loyal. And so when it says here, verse 5, that the servant plainly says, I love my master, what it is, it's a declaration of loyalty and fidelity to the master. Now, again, that commitment of fidelity and loyalty, that declaration, it can be accompanied by some kind of felt response, a, a felt need. And indeed, many times I believe that it is. If someone's truly willing to enter into a covenant of loyalty with you, then probably there's some emotional response that comes with it. But as we all know, that emotional response comes and goes. But what must remain is that declaration and that commitment to loyalty. And so that's what's being envisioned here. If the servant comes in, and the servant, and, and quite ironically, and this is hard for, for us to get our heads around, because we would think, well, well, you know, slavery, I, I, you can either be free or you can be a slave. But the slave comes in and says, look, I've dealt with the harsh realities of life. I know what being free meant. Being free got so bad, I ended up here. That, that's the reality for the ancient Israelite slave. It was freedom was so bad out there, I ended up becoming this. And now that I'm in this, I have a master who has given me life. That's the idea. I have a master who's given me all the good that I have. I had nothing coming in. I was broke. I was in debt. I could have died and starved to death. And I came in and this master was willing to take me on. And this master has given me every good thing in the world I have. And now I have the opportunity to walk away from that. And instead, you know what? The idea of being free without all the goodness of this master is no longer good to me. Rather, I would desire to serve this master forever. And so the covenant code here makes a provision for that. This mysterious case of the slave that loves his master and finds that serving him is better than what he had before he was found by him. And so the procedure is recorded here in verse 6. Then his master shall bring him to the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Now, I believe, friends, that as we look at not only this practice historically of slavery, we are meant to understand texts like these when we come to the New Testament. And we hear the Apostle Paul begin the book of Romans or numerous other books in the New Testament. And the Apostle begins the introduction to their letter with this simple title, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. 
I believe Paul, as a Hebrew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a student of the scriptures, knew this passage. He knew Exodus 21. And Paul, like the slave, knew what it was like to be without the master, to be riddled by debt, to be heavy laden with the cares of this world. I believe that's the case of the Apostle Paul, not outwardly. Saul of Tarsus was not a slave outwardly, but he was one inwardly. And it was on that road to Damascus that Paul, who thought he was free, had it revealed that inwardly he was a slave. And it was Jesus Christ who was Lord and revealed himself to Paul. He revealed that he was actually a slave to sin. Paul, you think you're free. You think you're free because you have money and you can travel and you can put people in prison who don't line up with your religious views. And yet I'm revealing to you that you are a slave to sin and that I am the only one that can set you free, Paul. And so Paul, like the servant here, sees Jesus. He said, Lord, who is it? And the response is, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And Paul says, bring me to the door. Pierce my ear. I want to be your bondservant, your slave forever. And so it is this background. If we are morally repulsed at the human institution of slavery, we are meant to say, look, friends, as bad as the problems are out there, look at the problems in here. Slavery didn't come out of nowhere. It is ultimately birthed in the heart. Because the human heart, apart from Jesus Christ, the good master, is a slave to sin. Notice what Paul the Apostle, who called himself a bondservant of Christ, says in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 13. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are the that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves, listen to that, slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. So I have to use a historical human analogy for you to understand the serious nature of sin in our own lives. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and becoming slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, I think the Apostle Paul, if he were a 1960s American rock fan, he would say to Bob Dylan, 
Amen and amen. You are absolutely right. You got to serve somebody. There's no neutrality in this world. We might rightly decry the human historical practices of slavery, but let that not miscommunicate that because we've improved economically and politically, that we've also improved spiritually and morally. Friends, there is a big misunderstanding in the world that because technology is improved, because political systems or economic systems have improved, that the inner nature of man, therefore, has also automatically improved. No, friends, the problems in our, in our world today, politically, economically, socially, historically, ultimately, the Bible says, stems from slavery to sin. And the idea of, oh, I just want to be free. If free means autonomous, that you can't, you'd want to be free to serve no one, it's impossible. The fact is you must serve somebody. And we are either serving Satan, we are serving sin, we are serving death, or we are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. We are serving righteousness for the love of God. And that is the fundamental invitation I put forward to everyone today. Who will you serve? You gotta serve somebody. You're a slave to someone or something. What is it? If it is not the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you and has given you every good thing you've ever known in your lives, if you can see that he's the one who's given you goodness, if you can see that he wants to release you from slavery to Egypt into the world into the sin in your own heart, if you can see that, you can be liberated this morning because there's no greater freedom than being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those that continue to reject the Lord Jesus, we must be praying for them, praying for ourselves, because those who think they are free of Christ ultimately are slaves of sin. And Jesus Christ came to break the chains of sin that the world might be free to serve him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for your word. I thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, I thank you so much for revealing the true spiritual condition of man. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that your word includes not only the wrongs that have been done externally, outwardly, socially, politically, economically in the world, but you are using those realities, those sinful actions to highlight the sinful thoughts that preceded them. And Lord, I just pray for all of us, no matter where we are, if we do not know Jesus as Lord, I would just pray, Lord, that they would come to know him, that they would place faith in him, that they would believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord, that they would confess with their mouth that God has raised them from the dead, and they will be set free from sin. Lord, for those of us who had made the decision to have our ears pierced at the doorpost, to be a servant forever of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would renew our sense of servanthood this morning, that true freedom is found not in doing whatever we want to do, but in doing what you want us to do. That is where freedom is. Freedom is found in serving the Lord. So, Lord, help us this year to serve you in spirit and in truth. And we pray that you would spark a mighty revival that will change our families, change our cities, and change the world around us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
All right, friends, thank you so much for joining with us this morning. Looking forward to continuing our study of the book of Exodus together. And again, I'll be posting uh, some verses that you can read in between our Sunday morning messages so you can continue to be caught up with that text. Uh, I want to invite all of you to join us this Wednesday night as we continue our study of the book of 2 Corinthians. It's an amazing, encouraging book, and so I encourage you to join us for that. That's going to be at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Also, we got a big in-person event scheduled for next Sunday. It's the 24th at 10.30 a.m. Just a couple of quick notes about that, and we'll post more later on our Facebook page. Again, there may or may not be rain. The, the weather's looking a little iffy. We're going to plan on having an in-person service all the way up until Saturday night, Sunday morning. We'll see how it goes. If it's wet out, but if it's not raining, we still plan on doing it. Of course, if it is raining on Sunday morning, we will uh, not do the service uh, uh, in person. We will rather move it online. So just be aware of that. Planning on doing an in-person service. If it rains, we will move it online. If we do it in person, for those who are online in Canada, we will have an evening service where you can hear the message there for yourselves as well. Again, for those of you that would like to continue to support the ministry of the Word, the ministry here at Image Church, I would encourage you all to give online. We, you can go to imagechurchoc.com and there's a Give tab there at the top and you can click on there and you can give with either a debit or credit card. You can also mail in a check or money order if you wish to our church mailing address, which is 27762 Antonio Parkway, Ellis and Larry 514. And that's Ladera Ranch, California, 92694. Again, all that information is on our website, imagechurchoc.com. If any of you have any Bible questions or prayer requests, feel free to either send those through our Facebook Messenger feature on our church page, or you can email us at information at imagechurchoc.com. That's information at imagechurchoc.com. All right, everyone, let me just say this final prayer blessing over you before you go your way this day. May the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you all, and I hope you have a blessed week in the Lord.